Well, good evening and welcome to our continuing series of stories in the gospel. I always put this up, but in case uh, it seems like we probably have people that are new at any given time, that's the question, or the question, that's the number that you can text questions during class to, and we try to answer as many as we can of your questions. So if you wanna text them to that number during class, we'll try to answer questions. Well, this series is a series about just walking through the four gospels and picking out different stories uh, of events and healing and teaching and miracles in Jesus' life to help us get a well-rounded picture of Jesus. So we have another great lesson tonight, great story from the life of Jesus, but let me say a prayer for us and then we'll dive in. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to come together and study your word. We're grateful for Jesus Christ. Father, I do pray that your spirit would move in this world as it is moving in this world, that you would reclaim the dark places of this world with the light. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light to those with whom we come in contact. I do pray, Lord, for our world. Pray for those who are suffering in the world, those particularly in Ukraine, but all around the world. There is inhumanity, there's oppression, there's suffering in this world, and I pray, Lord, that you would alleviate that suffering. May we be agents of your peace everywhere we go. In Christ's name, amen. Well, to introduce this, I thought we'd just get the map done right away. All right, so we're just gonna start with a map. We're in Mark chapter five, although this story, and I'll give you the references in a minute, is in all three synoptic gospels. Four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. That's just a name that's given to them because they follow a similar kind of flow that's largely chronological, and they take a similar approach to talking about Jesus' life as I mentioned to you, I think in our last lesson, John, the fourth gospel, takes a completely different approach. I mean, he certainly tells you events out of Jesus' life, but has a different purpose, a little bit different purpose. So not so chronological, much more, it's got a deep structure to it. So a little different, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story. And in uh, Mark chapter five, the first half of that chapter happens over here in a place called Gergesa, uh, the Gadarenes, the Gergesenes, uh, you'll see this name several ways, it was known several ways. But around the Sea of Galilee, you have an area up here that's Jewish, mostly Jewish people live there. And over on this side, I'm marking on this to show you, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee is mostly Jewish. But where Gergesa is, over here on the east, southeast side, this is mostly, we'll just call it pagan, and all I mean by that is not a lot of Jews live there. And so you've got Greeks, you've got people from all over, uh, you probably have some Romans, but mostly Greeks and Syrians and people from around, but they're not Jewish. And so if you remember that story, that's the story where Jesus goes to, this area is called the Decapolis, the area of the 10 cities but it's, it's not a Jewish area, but Jesus is there anyway. And he goes there and he encounters the guy, remember who has the legion of demons? And this guy's just wild man and comes to Jesus. Jesus casts the demons out. They said, hey, let us go into these swine, these pigs. First tip off, this is not a Jewish area. Goes into the pigs, runs off into the sea. And so the man, when the people come, they find the man sitting there in his right mind, clothed, talking rationally, and what do they do? They began to plead with Jesus to leave their country. Okay, so what, what happened to Jesus? He does a miracle over here, he heals this man, and they say, please go. So he does. Jesus then, and here's the end of the story, by the way, tail end of Mark chapter five, first half, and then leading into our story. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he could go with him, be his disciple, follow him. And so Jesus said, you can be my disciple, but you can't go with me. He said, he didn't permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. By the way, 
You could do worse living your Christian life by that sentence. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the whole Decapolis, I mean that whole area, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. So where are we? So he leaves this area right here and they get in a boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee and they land back on the Jewish side, somewhere close to Capernaum, because our story is going to take place in Capernaum. And if you remember, Capernaum is the biggest city in this general area on the Sea of Galilee. It's the biggest village. If you go there now and you look at the ruins, you realize significantly bigger than most of the others. And I've mentioned to you before, the reason for that is, it's literally on the boundary between Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. Think of them as governors, if you want, of those two areas, and it's literally on the boundary. And as you move back and forth, interstate commerce is taking place and taxes are being collected. So you got Romans there, you've got royal officials there, you've got all kinds of people in Capernaum, and this was Jesus' home base for a while around the Sea of Galilee. And so our story takes place in Capernaum when he's just come back from the Decapolis. And so a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea, he got out on the shore of the sea. And this is interesting. So he leaves the area where he's just done this great miracle and they're pleading with him to leave. Why, by the way? I mean, it's hard not to like him. He just did a great deed. They're afraid. And as a matter of fact, most people in the gospels, matter of fact, in the whole Bible, when they actually get close to the power of God, and I mean power not as in a mean way, I mean just power as in, oh my goodness. You, know, you remember we talked about the story of Peter when Jesus had spoken and he said, push out in the deep and let your nets down, and they did, and they're like full of fish, and Peter realizes this is a miracle. I mean, literally this is not, this is super natural. This is beyond natural. What does he do? He falls down on his knees and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's scared. In fact, the normal thing in the Bible, when people come into contact with the power of God is they fall flat on their face. In other words, there's, there's a sense of awe and a sense of fear. And so these people are afraid. They're like, wow, you are a holy man. You are powerful. We're kind of afraid. And so they ask him to leave. But notice when he comes back to the other side of the sea where he's done many miracles, he can hardly move because there are so many people around him. There is a great crowd all around him. So this is the beginning of our story, and I wanna just outline it. This is spoiler alert. If you haven't read this, man, I'm gonna tell you how it turns out. Before we even start, here is, this is an interesting, interesting little uh, incident. So a man is gonna approach him and say, please come heal my dying daughter. As he is on his way to do that, a poor woman is going to be healed not even by touching Jesus. Jesus is gonna stop and talk to the woman a little bit, and while they're talking, the little girl dies. Okay, that's a low moment in our story. Then, however, spoiler alert, the little girl is raised from the dead. This is unique in my experience in the Gospels and just the way this is structured and there's so many interesting lessons. I'll tell you the most powerful point to me is right there where the little girl dies. But let's go through this and I want you to see how this, this event in Jesus' life has a lot of interleaving. And on the one hand, you would see these as unrelated, but it's interesting how related these two events really are. So first, this is Capernaum today. Uh, the ruins of ancient Capernaum today. That is a synagogue. That synagogue is from the fourth century AD. So think about the 300s, that's old, right? But you can tell it's not native because if you look around here at all this stone, this is black basalt. And by the way, all around this thing are the ruins of houses. 
So this synagogue was in a neighborhood. I mean, there are houses all around this. I mean, it's not like a theater next door, no 7-Eleven next by. There's just all houses around this. But they're all made of this native stone in this area, this black basalt. Well, you notice that that synagogue from the fourth century is made of limestone. It's gorgeous. So that is not the, the synagogue of this story, but Underneath it, you can see the foundation stones right there, that black basalt foundation it's sitting on. When you got rid of a synagogue, you built another synagogue on it. That is the original foundation of the synagogue that this story is about. And so the foundation is there. As a matter of fact, if you go inside the new synagogue, they've excavated the floor, and you can still see some of the rooms literally from the time of Jesus. Down there. So I just want you to get a sense of connection to history. This story, obviously it rings true, it is true, but I mean this story is even historically, archaeologically very true. You still have the remains of this very synagogue. So then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. His name was Jairus. Now synagogues, by the way, today still have committees rulers of the synagogue. I don't know if they call them rulers. They probably call them committees. Think about it, depending on what kind of churches you've been in, think about it as a board of elders, a board of trustees, maybe a deacon board. If this is a group of people, or sometimes just one person, oftentimes just one person, but sometimes a committee of people who are responsible for the operation of the synagogue. You know, so they're responsible for, you know, getting the custodial work done. They're responsible for making sure people are paying their tithes and their dues, etc. And, and that still happens today. There's still an organizing group. And so Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue. This comes with some responsibility, but like being a deacon or an elder or board of trustees in a church today as kind of a, an analogy, this is a position of not necessarily prominence because although it was more prominent there than it is in a church. Hopefully in a church, if you're a deacon or an elder, you don't really think of it as I'm prominent. That, that's kind of not the Christian way. But it was a position of prominence for them. And so Jairus is uh, an individual of some, some means and some responsibility. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. The language here, by the way, is very emphatic in Greek, implored him, and the translation picks that up very nicely. This isn't just a, hey, could you do me a favor? This is a begging him and said, and what he's saying to him is, my little daughter is at the point of death. That's a good translation, because what he's saying is, she's had a fever, she's been sick, she's dehydrated, we know what death looks like. I mean, I know that many of you may have seen people die but in those days, almost everyone had seen someone die. I mean, think about the mortality rates, the infant mortality rates. I mean, they were far more acquainted with sorrow and unfortunately far more acquainted with the realities of physical suffering and death. And so they had a keen idea that, okay, this, this little girl is not going to make it. She's going to die. And so he says, my little daughter, she's 12 years old. So you get the sense of just the fatherly anguish my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him and a great crowd followed along and thronged all about him. You know what's interesting to me about this story is this simple sentence, not so much the man's desperation. I mean, you feel the pathos of that. Even if you're a parent, even if you're not a parent, and if you try to put yourself in this situation and imagine what if you were this synagogue ruler? What if you made your way through the crowds and got close enough to Jesus, fall down, grabbed his knees and said, please, please come heal my little daughter knowing that uh, he doesn't owe you anything. I mean, he doesn't need to come heal your daughter. I mean, you're taking a leap of faith thinking he can heal your little daughter, right? And so you can feel the pathos. But notice what it says here, and Jesus went with him. It's just that simple. It wasn't always that simple. Do you remember the story when Jesus was back in Cana of Galilee? Cana's about a day's walk from here, from Capernaum. And a royal official came from Capernaum and he, he walked all the way to Cana 
And he said to him, please come because my little child is dying. And what did Jesus say? How long will I have to put up with you people? You remember that story in the gospels? Well, you're gonna see both sides. This is part of let Jesus be who he is, right? As opposed to a Jesus of our own making. So in this case, he just went. In that case, he didn't. And so trying to figure out the why of that is one thing, but the interesting thing to me about this is he just went and he agreed. And guess what? The crowd went with him. Everywhere he goes, there's so many people pressing on him and a, and a crowd is moving with him as well. And meanwhile, inside the crowd while he's going, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. This is socialized medicine, people. That's what I'm telling you. And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. So she's desperate, isn't she? I want you to think about this for a second. Let's pause and put ourselves in her position for a minute. So she has this physical ailment that involves a discharge of blood. Well, that's really, really unfortunate if you're a Jew. I mean, it's unfortunate in general. It's even more unfortunate if you're a Jew because first of all, she's, she's spent all her money. She's poor now. She spent all her money trying to get well and she's not well. She's lost all of her social status because of the nature of the ailment and she's sick. She's poor, she's isolated, and she's sick. She's isolated because in the law of Moses, uh, a discharge of blood, for example, in a, the monthly menstrual cycle, women were considered ceremonially unclean. It, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's part of the ceremonial law of cleanness, uncleanness. If you were around a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean for a period of time. And certain things could happen that, that basically under the law made you unable to do certain things. And so, the problem for her is she has this continual discharge of blood, so she is always ceremonially unclean. And so the, the problem for her socially is she's not a leper, but she's effectively isolated like that in that people don't invite her over anymore. It's like, if I invite you over now, I can't go to church tomorrow. You know, I just... It's just they won't let me in. It's just the rules. No hard feelings, but she was isolated. So she spent all her money. She's poor. She's socially isolated, and she's sick. She still got this ailment, and she suffered like this for 12 years, and so she's ceremonially unclean. Well, point number one, she's not supposed to be in the crowd because it's kind of rude to to the, anybody she touches then is ceremonially unclean. Now they don't necessarily know it, but if they did, it would be kind of rude. Like, hey, what are you doing? This is not socially acceptable. You know better than that. That's a rude, it's sort of like, you know, if you go to Target, let's say, and you're pulling down the aisle and you see a, a parking spot and you kind of merge out because you're about to go in and next thing you know, somebody on the other side whoop, pulls through, takes your parking spot. What do you do? Well, you lay on the horn of course. No, you don't lay, I mean, but my point is you look at that and you go, hey, that's just not what we do, okay? It's like, that's not against the law, but you know what, that's just rude. Okay, well that's, what she's doing is at least rude, right? So, but she's desperate. And so she's in this crowd kind of keeping to herself. She's heard about Jesus. And so she'd heard the reports and she came up behind him in the crowd and that's not easy. Have you ever seen men move through a crowd and women move through a crowd? Very interesting. Men use a lot of elbows. Women, smart. And so she kind of makes her way through this and she finally gets up near Jesus. Everybody's trying to get near Jesus. And she touched his garment because she thought to herself, if I could just touch his robe, I will be made well. Now, why does she think that? I don't know why she thinks that. I mean, there's nothing, there's no particular, it's not like everybody knew the magic rule. If you touch his robe, you're gonna be well. She's desperate and she hopes against hope and she believes that if indeed he's the Messiah, then touching his robe, she just knows that she will be healed. 
And immediately, the flow of blood stopped and she felt in her body that she was well. Well, I wanna tell you what actually happened here. This is just a good example. What did she touch? She touched the other accounts, not Mark, but Matthew and Luke use a specific word. Instead of just touching his garment, she touched the tassel on his garment. And so this is some modern day uh, illustrations of what tassels look like. These are prayer shawls. So that's a prayer shawl. This is a prayer shawl worn outside, probably on the way to prayer. On these prayer shawls are tassels. They're called tzitzit in Hebrew. And so they're tassels on the prayer shawl. And this comes from the Old Testament. And they tie 613 knots in these tassels. Why? 613 laws in the law of Moses, in the Torah. There are 613 laws that the rabbis had counted. So there's 613 knots in these. You'll see Orthodox uh, Jewish men wearing them. He has a, a prayer shawl under his clothes and you'll see the tassels hanging out. So if you've ever seen that, not so much in Oklahoma City, you will see it some, but in other places what that is is they're wearing a shawl and they have the tassels uh, hanging out from their clothing. And so in Jesus' time, a lot of times they would tie them on their robes as well, and that would be your prayer shawl. When you go to the Western Wall, for example, in Jerusalem, you'll see people wearing a prayer shawl, kind of like a shawl, and they get up there, and sometimes they'll just daven and pray, you know, they'll just rock and pray. But a lot of times they'll put the prayer shawl up over their head and they'll pray. And it's a beautiful reverential kind of moment, but they wear these shawls, they have the tassels. In Jesus' day, they would put those tassels on the clothing, and your cloak would be your prayer shawl right? And so you wore it with you and you had the tassels. All she touched was just the tip of one of those tassels on his robe, on his shawl, if you will, his prayer shawl. And sure enough, she's healed. She doesn't even touch him and she's healed. That alone is probably worth a lesson, but I'm going to move past that because it's not the point I want to make, but it's really pretty interesting. The idea of what does it take for Jesus to heal people? And if you look at the healings of Jesus, he does it in a lot of different ways. But I just wanna make one point, and that is, it's nothing like faith healers today. I mean, nothing like faith healers today. I mean, it has nothing to do necessarily with the person's faith, although Jesus always commends people's faith in God. And yet there are people healed that you have no idea if they have any faith in God or not. In other words, Jesus simply has power over natural things. And that's what happens here. And so this woman who has had this discharge touches a tassel on his garment and sure enough, she is made well. Let me take a pause here for just a second because I want to draw a contrast and a similarity between these two people. So you have a woman who's been suffering for 12 years and you have a little girl who's only 12 years old. And one interesting thing here that I've noticed about us as, as human beings is we approach God in our need, which we all approach God in our need. You, can, you really can't approach God any other way. And we approach God in our need. And when we do so, like this woman, if you stop and think about it for a minute, whose life is worth more? Well, our culture would say that the 12-year-old girl's life is worth more than the old woman, the poor old woman, right? Wrongful death, something happens, lawsuit, guess what? You don't get the same settlement for those two people, do you? You're all shaking your heads like, hey, I know, it's crazy. Okay, but bottom line, our culture and many cultures would put a different value on those two lives. What's really interesting to me is we think that way sometimes. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but when you get to a certain stage of your life and you look back at your life and you turn to Christ and you think to yourself, oh, what I've wasted. Why wasn't I faithful long before this? I mean, you turn to God and you think, look at all the years I've wasted. I have so little time left. If you've ever felt that way, it's like, God, I don't even know if I'm worth this. Maybe you should invest in someone who's gonna serve you for decades. But the interesting thing about this is there's never any hint 
of any respect of your situation or the person. I mean, there are people that come to Christ who've been horrific sinners, heartbroken, and he heals them. There are people that come to Christ, young people, and he heals them, and they have decades of service in the kingdom. But God accepts everyone who comes. We just don't always think that. And one of the great lessons in this story is, Jesus heals them both. Jesus stops on his way to the little girl to heal this old woman. Now, if you're Jairus at this point, you're probably thinking, ma'am, I, I really appreciate this, but we gotta get going, right? But Jesus doesn't, he stops and he takes time. And I think that's a powerful lesson for us. We are never too far gone, we are never too old, we're never too sinful, we're never too anything for God to heal us, to love us, to invest in us. Well, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, that is a fascinating little phrase, but we're not gonna go into it. He immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Well, his disciples said to him, and this is, I mean, I would have done the same, and they go, what are you talking about? There are a thousand people all pressing around, and you want to know who touched you? I'll tell you, Jesus, everybody in this crowd has touched you. Here, use this hand sanitizer. This is so COVID unfriendly. You know, I mean, we're all going to get sick out of this, right? This crowd is all around you. And he said, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. And the, the text on this, he intently looked around. It's not like he'd take a glance. It's like, no, he stopped. It's like, we're not going anywhere till I find out who touched me. Now I want you to put yourself in the woman's position. She's like, oh, great. Thought I was just gonna sneak on out of here. I'm well and everything was gonna be okay. But he's looking around. Now, all of a sudden, she has to come out into the open and she has to confess the whole deal. And she's probably thinking, when he finds out that I touched him, this holy man, this rabbi, when I was unclean and so he's unclean, he is gonna be so angry with me. She is scared to death. And sure enough, you see it. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down in front of him and told him the whole truth. Once again, what happens when people come into the power of God? In fear and trembling, she kneels down, and now all of a sudden she has to become perfectly transparent and confess what she has done. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In other words, it's a blessing. Go in peace is a Hebrew uh, blessing, basically. He said, I bless you. In other words, I have no criticism of you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset because now I'm ritually unclean because you, you touched my garments. I bless you and you're healed and go in peace. And you know, there's a lesson in that too, it seems to me. Sometimes when we come to, to God, we think that we are so unclean our expectation is that God will be revolted at us. In other words, our expectation is, God, if you really knew everything I've done, which he does, but it's not rational, but it's still the way we feel, if you knew the thoughts I had inside and who I really was, you would probably be revolted. And yet, you see this story, and it's just another reminder to me that our God is a forgiving God. You know, in 1 John 1, it says to this, you know, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. And you know, the beauty of that statement is, if we are faithful to confess our sins, as long as they're not too gross or too heinous, he is, was faithful to forgive them. It, there's not a condition on that. It doesn't say, if you've done sins, but well, certain ones you, you can't have done. I mean, if. If it's, if it's a mass murder, forget it. We're not forgiving those. You see this sense of God accepting us. And so I, I like these stories because of just the acceptance of God. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some people who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But Jesus overheard what they said, and he says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Or don't be afraid, have faith. Trust me. That's effectively what he's saying. Is it, just trust me. Well, now I want you to put yourself in Jairus' position. Two feelings, in my opinion, from Jairus. One is obviously, oh my goodness, am I gonna trust you or not? I mean, are you just trying to get me not to make a scene right here? Are you just trying to let me down easy? But let's face it, my daughter is dead. And so what, you know, what can I trust you for? It's too late, she's dead. So that's one thing that's happening is do you really trust Jesus in that situation when what you loved most seems to be gone? Second thing he's thinking is what I call the if only syndrome, if only. You remember this has happened to Jesus, uh, it's gonna, going to happen to Jesus. Remember the story with Lazarus. So Lazarus' his friend is sick, Jesus gets word. When they show up, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead several days, he's actually been buried. So he missed the funeral too. And so he gets there and what do the girls, Lazarus' sister say to him? If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so Jairus, I don't know about you, but I think Jairus is human like you and me, and he's probably thinking, if only that old woman had not slowed you down, we might have gotten there. Well, that's not a very worthy thought, is it? But it's a very human thought. If only this stupid crowd had not been here, if only you would have made a little faster, if only, if only, if only. And I don't know about you, but I think we all have if only moments. Now, most of mine are not at God. God, if only you had done this, if only you had smitten that person like I'd asked you to. Just a little fire from heaven, just, you know, then everything would have been okay. It's usually my if onlys are directed at me. Are yours that way? If only I had done this. If only I had done that. And it's amazing how much we punish ourselves with the if onlys. If only I hadn't done that. If only I'd seen knew then what I know now. I mean, the if only moments of life, and this is like one of the ultimate if only moments. You know, it's like, oh, we just didn't get there in time for my daughter to be saved. And so I really just, I told you this was what I thought was the most powerful part of the story, and this is why it's the most powerful part of the story, is what is Jesus saying in the if only moment? Does Jesus say, you're right, if only you had come to me sooner. If only you'd been a better dad. If only, if only, if only. I mean, he could say a lot of things, right? But he doesn't. I mean, we beat ourselves up with if onlys. Jesus doesn't beat us up with those. What does he say? Don't be afraid, just trust me. Question? I have questions about this story and the one before. Yeah. Um, on the story before, Jesus tells the man um, possessed with the demons to tell everybody what he did for him, that they might believe. But in so many of the other stories, he tells them not to. What's the difference? Good question. Well, uh, the question is, why does he tell that guy to go tell everyone what the Lord has done for him? But a lot of times in the healings, particularly in the early part of his ministry, he says, don't tell anybody what, what I've done. What I'm gonna tell you is an opinion because there is no answer in the text. So anything anybody tells you as to why when the answer is not in the text is conjecture. And it might be right, but it's conjecture. So here's my conjecture on that. I really think that in the Decapolis, you gotta ask yourself, why is he telling people don't go tell what's going on? Well, obviously people have told because he's already got a problem, doesn't he? He's got a problem of too many crowds. Now here's the interesting thing about this. Most people say, crowds, I'm a celeb, this is awesome. I've got fame, I got fortune TV stations here, getting all this publicity. That is not what Jesus wants. It's getting in the way of doing what he's here to do. What is he here to do? He's moving from town to town, village to village, repent because the kingdom of God is near. And eventually he's gonna go to Jerusalem and he knows what's gonna happen and so he's gonna fulfill his ministry. Crowds don't help Jesus at all. Crowds are a problem for Jesus to accomplish his mission. So the more people find out that 
you know, he's feeding people, that he's certainly, that he's healing people, you're gonna get crowds like this following him all over the place. And I mean, these are huge crowds. You get counts in a couple of his miracles where you've got 10,000 people. 10,000 people then in that area, it's like a million people today following you around. It's huge crowds. So my conjecture is this, is that it was not beneficial for his ministry for the crowds to be there. He wasn't going for publicity. He was there for a mission. Second thing, it was not helpful for him to come to the attention of the authorities until his, John says this, until his hour had come, until the time was right. There was a certain appointed amount of time. The only thing I can think of that makes it different with the other man is he's over in the Decapolis. Not a lot of Jews there. Jews don't go there. In fact, good Jewish kid. I mean, his disciples probably like, what, we're going to the Decapolis? If my mother finds out, whoa, I'm in big trouble. That's not where they would go. And so I think probably in that case is go spread the word because that's the only way they're gonna hear it because the Jewish people are not gonna come over here. So conjecture, but I think that it wouldn't compromise his mission and then the people were amazed. And so now when they hear later about this Jesus raised from the dead, that actually helps them to believe. Great question. When the woman touches his clothing and is healed, why does he have to look around um, to find out who she was? He knew she'd been healed. Yeah, that's interesting. This, this question gets at a, a deeper, bigger question. Probably what you're trying to get at in this question is, the question is when he gets, turns around, who touched my clothes? And looking around, why does he need to look around? If he's God and he knows everything, why didn't he turn around and say, Martha, Martha B, your order's ready. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Martha, Martha B, why don't you step on forward because I know that it was you that touched me. There's this interesting dynamic, and I don't really wanna to get too much into theology, but let me just stop here and say this. There's a sense in which Jesus is fully man and fully God. But if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus knows things that people don't know. People sees things that people don't know. Jesus has power that people don't have, and yet Jesus is completely human. Jesus does not know the hour of his return, only the Father knows that. In other words, Jesus is, I don't want you to think that Jesus and God are two different people. I mean, this is a Trinitarian idea, but the idea of Jesus is playing out this role of human and God. And so when Jesus turns around, the question is, does he already know who touched him? He doesn't act like he does. Is it knowable to him? I would argue yes, but he doesn't for what, to me, instead of saying, if Jesus has to be this way, how do you explain that? I actually wanna turn it around and I wanna let Jesus be who he is and let the scripture say what it wants to say. Since Jesus doesn't seem to know who it is, what is that telling you about being fully God and fully man? Does that make sense? I actually wanna turn that around just a little bit and we'll say apparently, apparently, Jesus is looking around. Now, you could argue that he already knows he wants her to step forward. I find that unconvincing, but I understand that. It's entirely possible. But the point is, he stops and he turns around because I think Jesus senses something else needs to happen here. And she steps up, and I think that's important because there's that step forward. Think of it this way. So suppose when you're 12 years old, no, let's make you younger. Let's make you six years old. And so Jesus shows up at the door, knock, knock. Come here, are your parents home? No, I am. Well, it's okay, I came to see you anyway. Congratulations, you're going to heaven. Really? Yes, when you're 32, you're gonna to come to Christ. And you will then be faithful the rest of your life. Oh, you're gonna have a couple of slip ups. By the way, that deal when you're 35, I'm not very happy about that. But generally speaking, you're gonna be okay the rest of your life. That doesn't happen that way, does it? No, there is a necessary interaction between will and God's knowledge. I kind of think of this in that way, in that Jesus is who he is so that these things can happen the way they are. Is he God? Yes. Is he human? Yes. And there's a little bit of a mystery in that. We are to become more Christ-like 
what things in this story should we model our lives on? If you think about the idea of becoming more like Christ, what are some things in this story that we should model our life on? I want, that's a great question. I kind of want to hold that question for just a little bit because I have two points at the end that I think will address that, kind of takeaways from this. So good question, I will answer it. In these, um, these stories, we see people who are healed. We have to assume there are people who are not. And in today's world, we see people of tremendous faith in Jesus, but the worst still happens. How do we reconcile that? It's a great question. So why were some people healed and why were some people not healed? There were probably, I'm just gonna grant this, and let's just assume this is true, because I think it probably is. There were people in that crowd who were trying to get close enough to Jesus to say, would you please heal me, and didn't. In other words, let's make it really immediate. There are people who are healed and there are people who aren't healed. And today, there are people for whom you have, I'm just gonna be very, very neutral about this, for whom there are favorable outcomes. The chemotherapy worked. The cancer is gone. Call it a miracle, not, I really don't wanna get hung up on that, I really just wanna make this point. For whatever reason, people of faith, some have one outcome, some have another. People of no faith have a good outcome, other people don't. Well, you can take a couple of approaches on this. You can try to explain why God chooses some and choose, doesn't choose others, or you can move way back and say, well, that's just a fallen world, God isn't really intervening. Problem with that is, God is intervening. I mean, that's just true. God is providential, his care is here. So why does God heal some people and not others? And I'm gonna give you uh, the conclusions that I draw from studying the scripture. And this may not be very, it's definitely not popular in our culture. But there are two thoughts. Number one, God is not fair. God is not fair. And nothing else is either. So before you get mad at God, nothing else is either. So before you accuse God, you're not fair, our system isn't fair, our world isn't fair, life isn't fair. It's kind of one of those coming of age things you learn as a kid. I learned it early um, because I had a sister who was pathological liar when she was four years old. Now she grew out of it by the time she was five, she was a perfectly pleasant woman and she's a perfectly pleasant woman today, but she was a little pathological liar when she was four. I cannot tell you how many spankings I got because she lied about me and that's when I realized it's a hard, hard, cold world out there. <laughs> and life is not fair. And, and I, I really, all joking aside, God is not fair. God is just, but God is not fair. And the world is not fair, nor are we. And our obsession with fairness is silly, if you think about it. You don't even want the world to be fair. You want the world tilted in your favor. I mean, am I telling you the truth? I'm definitely telling you the truth. I mean, when the officer pulls you over for going 45 in a 25, do you say, you know what? You should charge me double because I knew that. In fact, I live near here and I was going that fast anyway. Go ahead and write me up for reckless driving. Let's just go ahead and give me the max. What do you do? Officer, isn't it a pleasant day? Was I speeding? Oh my goodness, do you guys do warnings still? You know, I feel like a warning would be enough here. I mean, that's what you want, right? So let's not, let's be adults here. We don't necessarily even want fairness. Well, God is not fair and the world is not fair and not everybody is gonna be healed, period. That's the way it goes. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean Romans 8, 28's not true. God works together for good for those who love the Lord called according to his prayer. That's all still true, but he's not fair. I'll take that over fairness. I mean, fairness, I'm toast. All right, if, I mean, if there's any fairness in the universe, I'm not getting into heaven. It's only gonna be mercy. And you probably would say the same thing. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, fairness, eh, not such a good standard. I really like the mercy. I really like the grace part. So seriously, life isn't fair. God doesn't promise you to be fair. He will be just and he will be merciful, and he is gracious, but not fair. Second thing, it's not about the healing. The healings were always a means to an end. If Jesus only ever healed the handful of people, relative, 
handful of people that you know of from the Gospels. He apparently healed many, 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 many more people than this, but he certainly didn't heal everybody. The healings were not ever about the healing. The healings were always toward his purpose. The feeding the 5,000 wasn't about feeding hungry bellies. It was always a means to his purpose. Everything was a means to his ultimate purpose. Because if Jesus doesn't achieve that purpose, you and I are still doomed. The healings are there to show, to make a point. Does Jesus heal out of compassion? Of course he does. Does he heal sometimes because the person is there in front of him? Of course he does. But healings are there to say, remember when he was talking to the Pharisees and they were accusing him, he said, look, if you don't believe my message, at least believe the miracles. See what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm telling you the truth about God, the universe and life and everything, and all these things I'm doing are to validate and give you the authority that I can be trusted with what I say. This miracle is one of the ultimate, ultimate stamps of trustworthiness on Jesus. So two answers. Life's not fair. God never promised to be fair. He promised something better than fairness. And secondly, it's never been about the healings. So if our expectation is, if you heal one, you have to heal everybody. And God says, don't think so. That's my standard being applied to God rather than allow God's standard to be applied to us. And God's standard is, I got something way better than healing. And here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm starting to realize everybody dies. No one gets out of this alive. And so think about Lazarus, think about this little girl, think about the widow's son. They came back from the dead. Think about the lady. They all die in the end. And so the point is, and what Jesus is trying to say is, this life is something to be valued because it's a gift from God, but it pales in comparison to eternity. So good question. I think just the blunt answer is God's not fair and it's never been about the healings per se. The healings were there to serve another purpose. In fact, all the, all the miracles of God are there to serve another purpose. Good question. So he says to Jairus, just believe. And as Jesus didn't allow anyone to follow him except Peter and James and John, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. She's dead. I know there are people that want to make an apology for this and basically say, well, she probably wasn't really dead. Believe me, they know what dead people look like in those days. You know, if you've ever seen somebody die, you realize they're dead. I'm no biologist, but they're dead. I'm not a doctor, that person is dead. Oh, you caught that, that's very good. Anyway, so bottom line is they're dead. So what are they doing? They're grieving and they're grieving loudly and that was part of their culture, right? In fact, there were professional grievers who would come over to richer people's houses and you would pay them and they would make a lot of commotion and they'd cry and weep and wail and why is that? So all the neighbors and everybody would know wow, this is really sad. See how much they love them, you know? And so there's professional grievers here. I don't know if you've ever thought about that line of work, but it sounds pretty good to me. I mean, you might call the funeral homes and see if they still do that, but they're, they're weeping and wailing. And so when he entered the house, he said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And listen to this, and they laughed in his face. This is interesting. All, Matthew has a T90 little short account of this. He doesn't put in many details. He puts in that detail. All three of them have this exact Greek phrase, but they laughed in his face. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, somebody walks into a funeral and says, he's not dead, he's just asleep. And I don't know if you'd laugh in their face, but you'd think you're crazy. You know, that's just absurd. What you're saying is absurd. And, and you know what? A lot of things Jesus says to our culture is absurd to the culture. And our culture does a lot of laughing in the face of Jesus, does a lot of railing their fist in the face of Jesus, and yet it's still true. And so he put them all outside, he kicked them all out of the house, 
He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went into the child's room. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. I don't know if you ever think about it, but if you're Jairus and his wife, you are really out on a limb here. I mean, you know you look like a fool, like our daughter is dead and the rabbi here says she's not dead. And all those people, let me tell you what every single one of those people did. They got kicked out of the house, they went outside, they got on their phones and they start hitting social media. Won't believe what Jairus and his wife are doing. Some crazy man is over here and says his daughter's not dead. I mean, their reputation is ruined. If this doesn't work, they're in deep trouble. It's gonna be like, yeah, we thought you were a good ruler of the synagogue, but turns out you're not that rational. That's kind of kooky, Jairus. You know, so, I mean, they've put their reputation on the line to trust Jesus. I think there's a really good lesson there for us. Sometimes we want Jesus and we wanna be respectable. And there comes a time when standing up for what Jesus said, you're going to have to lose your reputation for sooner or later. And I don't mean you're gonna lose your reputation because you did something terrible or you did something mean to someone, but standing next to Jesus is gonna get some tomatoes thrown at you sooner or later. If not, you probably ought to ask yourself, are you really standing next to Jesus? Because it seems to me everywhere he went, people got angry because he told them the truth. So he took him in to where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha Kami, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years old and they were overcome with amazement. This Greek word is ecstasy. They were ecstatic. I mean, this is sort of the, there are different words for amazement in Greek. And there's some kind of amazement like, whoa, never saw that coming, that is amazing. Um, this is the kind of amazement that you see on people's faces on YouTube videos where the publisher's clearinghouse comes to their door, knocks on the door, doesn't tell them. They're still in their bunny slippers and their house robe and they're on national TV, but they don't care because they're ecstatic. Oh my goodness, I won the lottery, right? So that's what this word is. They are, it's a mixture of I can't actually believe it and I'm so happy and I can't even take all this in. Literally, he just says, little girl, get up and immediately she gets up. One interesting thing here, in the account in Luke, same account, but notice this, he said, don't weep, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Yeah, you're right, she's dead. But taking her by the hand, he said, child, get up, and her spirit returned. I just wanted to point this out to you because this is interesting Jewish thinking. And it's an interesting hint to us about the afterlife. This idea of why would you say her spirit returned? That's an interesting way of thinking. But the Jews had thought this a long time. This is a line from an Orthodox Jewish prayer book. It's called a sitter. It's a really old prayer. They're, they're prayers that, that Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, say at different times during the day. This is the first prayer you are supposed to say as soon as you wake up in the morning. I give thanks to you, living and eternal King, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me. Your faithfulness is great. Now, why do they say this first thing? Two reasons. When you say merciful and living King, it means you get up. It's a, it's a reminder to you, you're awake, you're now in the presence of the living God, you don't lay down in front of God, get up, get out of bed, rise. The second thing is to realize that this day of life is another gift from God. Jews didn't take for granted that, they thought that when you went to sleep, your soul was held in God's keeping and that every day that you woke up was God granting you another day of life. He restored your soul. When you read the Psalms, you know, hopefully you'll read this a little with more depth now, you're gonna hear that phrase, he restores my soul. What does that mean? It means he keeps my soul in safe keeping. And when David says this, he needs the help because a lot of people were trying to kill him. He said, and yet when I wake up, he restores my soul. He has preserved me. He has taken care of me. Think about 
what we say. You remember the old prayer? Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die, hang on to it. But the bottom line is I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's a hangover from that idea. That's a holdover from the idea. And it's a great idea in this sense, God's providence. God's not some faraway God that you met when you were baptized or you walked an aisle and you'll see him again when you die and you go to heaven. God is providential, meaning he's still involved in your life. He's still caring for you. Scripture talks about the whole universe continues in its movement because Christ supports it, because God's power. The Jews never had the thought, the deistic thought that was popular in the Western world at some times, and still is, that God starts the universe in motion, backs off and said, hope everything works out well. Kind of that distant God. Jews never thought of God that way. He spoke the world into existence and the word of God continued to propel the universe. And so this idea of her spirit was returned, Jesus is effectively, think about it this way, Jesus is saying, she's not dead because I hold her soul in my hand. You see what he's saying? I know where her soul is. She's effectively just asleep. I can restore her soul. What's he doing here? Well, first, raising people from the dead gets my attention. I don't know about you, but I think that's a serious grade A miracle. And especially when it's done with no fanfare. Jesus raises several people from the dead. What's that say? You said that you had the keys to eternal life. Well, that's pretty strong evidence if you ask me. If, and think about the way the Jews thought about this. It's not just that you can do supernatural stuff. I mean, this is not Walking Dead. This is not a zombie movie, okay? By the way, when did we get so wrapped around the axle about zombies? I mean, it's zombie shows, zombie movies. Okay, this is not a zombie. This is like, this little girl lives the rest of her natural life out. What's he saying if you're a Jew? Only the one who holds her soul can put it back in her body. And God is the one who holds her soul because we say this prayer every morning when we wake up. Thank you, living God, King of the universe, for restoring my soul. What did Jesus just say? She's just asleep. I will restore her soul. Do you see the power of what he's saying? Oh my goodness, the Jews definitely got the power of what he's saying. They're going to kill him for claiming to be the son of God. Oh, he's definitely claiming to be God because he said, I have her soul and I can restore it to her. You're a Jew, you read this and you go, whoa, this is not just a prophet, this is God himself. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so I love this story because of the interweaving, if you will, of the woman who's had the issue of blood for 12 years and she's unclean and then you get the 12-year-old girl. And by the way, what about Jesus in this case? He touched a woman who was unclean and he touched a dead body. He should be unclean. But here's the interesting thing. The way the law of Moses worked is if you touched something unclean, you became unclean. Everything Jesus touched became clean. The woman is healed. The little girl is now alive. Jesus makes everything whole. He makes everything clean. He fulfills the law of Moses. He makes things clean. He makes everything new. So, lessons. I told you I'd get to a couple of ideas of what do we learn from this about Jesus. A couple of thoughts that stick out to me. You may have others, you may have betters. And one is that God's timing is not our timing. And it requires faith. Why didn't God heal me when he healed my neighbor? My neighbor doesn't even go to church as often as I do. God's timing is not ours. God's decisions are not ours. I love this saying. I don't know who said it. I've said it, but I don't think I said it first. If we could see what God sees, we would do what God does. If we could see what God sees, I believe we would do what God does. And we wouldn't have any arguments about fairness. We'd say, if I knew what you knew, 
I would do what you did. You did what was good. You did what was best. In my limited view, I do not understand that. And so this point is Jesus trusted God. I mean, Philippians 2, Jesus was with God, but he became obedient and took on the form of a servant, even to death, even death on a cross. Jesus models faith. The whole point is initial Adam is the man who was unfaithful, and in Adam all die. Jesus is the new and better Adam who is faithful, and in Jesus everyone lives. So this idea of faith, the faith of Christ, is powerful for us because ultimately, when we place our trust in Christ, it's not the quality of our faith that's gonna save us. It's not like I'm gonna go before God and said, hey, I believed in you, I was faithful. I was like about an 87 on a scale of 100 of faithfulness here. Where's the cutoff? I hope you're grading on the curve. It's not our faith. It's Jesus' faith that saves us. We are throwing ourselves and trusting in him. I'm not trusting even, I'm not trusting in my works. I'm not even trusting in my faith, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Like, oh God, save me because I really believe in you. No God, grant me mercy because I believe in him. I'm with Jesus. And he had perfect faith. So that's the idea of throwing ourselves completely on Jesus. And then secondly, this is one that's hard for me to know, and this is a hard lesson. I learned this from Jesus, I wanna be like Jesus, I really struggle with this. Sometimes the thing we're here to do comes in the form of an interruption. I don't know about you, but I hate interruptions. I'm kind of a type A focused person, I got a plan, and heaven forbid, do not throw me off schedule. And you're thinking, God, I'll bet car trips were great with you. Yes, unfortunately, car trips were not good. Bathroom stop? I haven't got that budgeted for another two hours. Better hold it, kids. No, I mean, we all have our plan, don't we? We're Westerners, we're Americans, we're busy, aren't we? Sometimes the most important things God brings to us come in the form of interruptions, and I wish I were like Jesus. What does Jesus do? You know, if I were Jesus and that lady had come up to me, I would have said, hold that thought, I got a little girl to save. You know, I'm, you know I'm, I got something really important here to do. I'm afraid I don't have time to deal with your problem now, lady. I mean, fair enough. You know, we would say, I'm, I'm, I'm late for a meeting. I've got something really important to do. But it's funny how often God brings things like that in the form of an interruption. And I just think that's so rude of God. God, could you not work that into my schedule better? I mean, I gave you access to my calendar. You know, you can see where the free time is. Would you please bring the ministry opportunities in the free time? You know, that's me and maybe that's you too. But one of the hard lessons and one of the things Jesus teaches me is sometimes the most important things you do are an interruption when you're on your way to do something you think is important. And I wonder when we get to heaven if, okay, now this is just a thought experiment. And so you start to see, I, I don't think you're gonna see a movie of your whole life I think that would be hell. I don't think that would be heaven. I don't know about you, but in hell, they show you a movie of your life. And then you have all those if only moments, you know, kind of a thing. That's not heaven, that's hell. Heaven, you know what it is? Highlight reel. You ever seen those highlight reels, you know, like on ESPN, dunk, dunk, oh, great shot, whatever. They don't show you where you lost the ball. They don't show you where you whiffed a three-pointer. They don't show any of that. The highlight reel is your best moments. So I have this vision of your best moments in heaven. You're gonna go, watch this, because I can tell you what's coming up. That's no, that's not even on the highlight reel. That was my biggest accomplishment. Oh my goodness, I stood on a stage, I sang a song, I gave all this money. Did you not know there's a building named after me on the church grounds? You know, whatever that is, I don't think that's on the highlight reel. I think it's like, what, that? That little thing I did, that was just something I did on the way to do something else. I honestly think this lesson from Jesus is God really values the little things. And so the lesson out of this, I mean, there are probably a lot of lessons I hope we learn from Jesus in this, but one thing is let's not let busyness keep us from seeing the people God brings in our life. And let's make time. And at the end of the day, trust God and his providence that he'll work things out. Okay, so Jesus, interruptions, 
Busyness, make time for what God brings in our life. And when we have those moments where we say, I wish God had done this differently, is trust God. God's timing's not ours. And if we knew what he knew, and we loved us the way he loves us, we would do what he did. And in the end, he will preserve our lives forever. Next week, we do not have class because it's Holy Week, meaning Easter week. And so here at our church, on Thursday, we'll do the communion story at noon and six. I think it's probably streamed. So if you've never heard it, it's a great story. I'll tell you what Maundy Thursday is, but we're gonna do at noon and six, stream the communion story, Maundy Thursday. Then on Friday here, uh, and in Edmond, our two locations, we have a Good Friday experience, must be present to win, can't do it visually, you have gotta be here, powerful experience. And then we'll have services that are broadcast on Saturday and Sunday, Easter services. We'll be back here on Wednesday night in two weeks. And in two weeks, have one of the really, okay, so far we haven't really gotten anything too controversial. You guys have looked pretty nice, nobody's thrown anything. That may change in two weeks. I wanna do one of the more controversial stories about Jesus. So I'll see you then. Thanks.